Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Sink or Swim podcast. My name is Lexi. And I'm Summer. And we are both fourth years at NSUMD who are interested in women's health. So as part of this podcast, we also decided that we're going to get a new Starbucks drink each time and then rate them. So today I had actually planned on getting a peppermint mocha from Starbucks, but they said there's a nationwide shortage, so we won't be doing that. So instead, I have a vanilla caramel brulee in a cold brew. And it's pretty good so far, not the best. Summer, what are you drinking? Um, okay, so I have a cinnamon dulce latte iced. It's a classic, but I just decorated for Christmas yesterday, so you have to get all the holiday feels in. So scale of one to ten, what would you say your latte's at? Mm, honestly, I think I'm gonna give it like a five. A five, five out of ten. Okay, a little harsh. Yeah, it's not my favorite. It's a little bitter. Okay, what I would about say eight point five. that's pretty high it is but you get that one a lot I do I know what I like all right so let's talk a little bit more about who we are and introduce ourselves a little bit Summer can you tell us a bit more about yourself yeah absolutely so uh, my name's Summer I'm from Naples Florida originally I went to University of Florida for undergrad where I majored in nutrition when I chose that major I didn't really know what I wanted to do But through my nutrition classes, I decided that I wanted to go to medical school. I really thought nutrition in relation to disease as well as, you know, nutrition as you change throughout the life cycle was interesting. And that piqued my interest and later decided to go to medical school. Um, Because I was a little later in deciding that I wanted to go to medical school, I took a gap year, which was really great. I highly recommend it if um, that applies to you or if you're not already past that point. But... So I took a gap year, I moved to Atlanta, and at that point I was working as a medical scribe for a GI doctor. Um, It was a really cool experience, I feel like I learned a lot, and I was also a fitness instructor at the time, which was really fun. I got to work with a lot of women. Um, We did like prenatal modifications, and so I feel like that kind of piqued my interest in women's health um, before even going to medical school. And then I came here to NSUMD in Fort Lauderdale, and I love it here. I love the warmth. I love the ocean, and I enjoy the school. What about you, Lexi? Before we go there, the nutrition major, though, is pretty cool. I haven't really heard of anybody else that's a nutrition major. Thank you. Went to med school. I feel like you had a very different perspective of everything. Yeah, it was definitely interesting. I mean, I think a lot of the things we learn and the, you know, the diseases we see can be you know, you can always solve it with nutrition, but I do think that you can prevent a lot with, you know, eating correctly or optimizing your health. Yeah, definitely. That's pretty cool. And then as far as me, so I grew up pretty locally. I'm from Davie, Florida. So, you know, I've been in the South Florida region most of my life. I went to University of Miami for undergrad. So go Canes. Got to throw that out there. I studied biology with minors in chemistry and Spanish. Um, And then I also took a gap year, which I'm very happy that I did. I feel like it was a really good amount of time to decompress from undergrad and kind of get ready for med school. Um, And then in my gap year, I worked as an ER scribe. I also got phlebotomy certified, but I never really worked as a phlebotomist. I just, (laughs) you know, learned how to take blood and whatnot. And then I went on to med school here at NSUMD. Um, I actually was more interested in surgery when I started med school. I was very gung-ho about pursuing surgery. Loved my surgery core rotation. And then when I got to OBGYN, it was just something that I never knew that I was missing. You know, you got to follow up with patients long-term, see them in the office, then do their C-sections, their deliveries, 
And there was just more continuity that um, for me made me more fulfilled at the end of the day. And um, so that's why I decided to apply OBGYN and that's what brings me here. Awesome. So fun to hear. I remember. So Lexi and I did our surgery rotation together. Yeah, we did. <laughs> that was actually our first rotation. And before that, we had just been um, studying from home all day, every day for, you know, because of COVID. And so that was like our first jump back into reality, having to interact with people again. And of course, you know, surgery is kind of known for being the most intense rotation in terms of, you know, the time, the effort that you have to put forward. So I think that was a big shock, but Lexi thrived. I remember just seeing her like run around, do the most, learn the most. So I definitely feel like you're going to be like a surgical, you know, gung ho person in the OBGYN field, which I think is kind of cool. I definitely still have a love for surgery. So I definitely see myself doing that long term. Yeah. Our surgery rotation was definitely a good time. I'm glad I had Summer with me. She was entertaining. (laughs) (laughs) I definitely made some entertaining mistakes that... uh... (laughs) Yeah. Maybe we can talk about those a little bit later. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) But I now have a lot of good tips that do apply. You know, how to prepare yourself in the OR, how to present yourself in the OR, and, you know, how to be more of a professional. So I think some of my failures help you know, moving forward. So definitely. I definitely have my fair share of mistakes as well. That I'll be happy to share a bit later when we go into tips yes. for the floors. Lexi, did we go over like what we're going to cover today? Do we want to give them like a little rundown of, of the podcast agenda? Yeah. Why don't you give us a little breakdown of what we're going to talk about? Okay. All right. So right now we're just kind of introducing ourselves. Um, so you guys can tell a little bit note, <laughs> to know a little bit more about us. Um, and then we will talk about tips for your third year um, in general, and then also for your OBGYN um, rotation for anybody that's interested in doing well in this rotation or pursuing that career. Then we'll move on to options that you can do after OBGYN residency to further your career. Um, this is something that Lexi and I are still kind of exploring ourselves. Um, And also different ways to go about a career in women's health. And then we'll talk about the residency application process and then any tips we have for people applying to residency. Lexi and I just kind of completed this whole whole process and now we're in the midst of interviews. So it's a little fresh in our minds. And then that will conclude part one of our podcast. And then we'll come back for part two. Um, In part two, we're going to cover most commonly asked questions that we got pimped um, on our OBGYN rotation and um, go through some of those little pearls that we can talk about. We also have um, abbreviations to go through, things that you'll see often, and it's just helpful to be aware of when you start your rotation. Did I miss anything? No, I think our main goal just for this podcast is to give the students a bit of a glimpse into what we wish we knew before going onto the OBGYN floors and really just asking each other those questions, some of which I'm sure we've forgotten by now, but just some things that will make you shine a little bit more if you know ahead of time. All right. Sounds great. So do we want to move into our first section? So this will be tips for your third year and your OBGYN rotations. Lexi, why don't you start us off with your favorite tip? Yeah, I think overall my favorite tip for being on the floors of OBGYN is making good relationships with your nurses. Um, You know, it's so important to, number one, 
introduce yourself to all the nurses, especially before seeing your patients, um, you know, kind of asking how you can help, where the patients are at. I think OBGYN, even more than other fields, the nurses play such an integral role in taking care of the patients and in assessing their progress. So kind of being on their good sides and seeing how you can help, I think, you know, number one, you're going to be the most helpful for your patients, but then also you're going to get to do more. You know, the more that your nurses trust you, the more that they're going to kind of ask you to get involved, hold legs back, um, you know, and kind of just tell you when something's happening. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. I think that's something that translates to a lot of other rotations that you'll go on during your third year, but I think it's especially important for OBGYN. I think, you know, every specialty you go to, you're going to want to have a rapport with the office staff, with the nurses, everybody around you. Um, beyond just the attending that you're working with or the residents. Yeah, and I've noticed too, some of the nurses have been doing this for 20, 30 years or super tenured, and they just kind of have a knack for knowing when things are going to happen and for seeing things that as a medical student, you won't really know just off the textbook. So, you know, it's always a good idea to kind of pay attention to what they're looking at and kind of ask them how they're interpreting different signs and symptoms. Yeah, absolutely. And I think especially in OBGYN, um, you know, it's such an intimate specialty. You know, you're going to be between women's legs or seeing a lot of, you know, skin that you wouldn't always see in other specialties. And so I think the nurses kind of have this um, this role of advocating for their patients and kind of being a, you know, a protector. You know, they're not going to let just anybody do anything. So they want to know that the student has introduced themselves, invested themselves, um, and is there to to learn, but also to be appropriate and provide the best care for the patient. Yeah, I agree with that. Also, during my rotations, there definitely would have been quite a few deliveries I would have missed had the nurses not come and grab me right before. And I think had I not established a good relationship with them, I, you know, could have missed it because one minute a woman is, you know, kind of happy going through labor. I guess happy is the wrong choice of words there. But, um, you know, the next second things really progress and she's crowning. Mm-hmm. So it's important to be able to find a way to be there when that moment happens. Yeah. And so in terms of speaking of nurses, we also have the scrub nurses, right? And so they're a whole different entity. Yeah. Um, and so I think, you know, just traditionally med students kind of have a little bit of a fear of the scrub nurses the first time they scrub into a surgery. I know I definitely did. I had a fear of everything before I scrubbed into my first <laughs> surgery. Um, but So I think a good relationship with the scrub nurse is very important. So maybe, Lexi, could you take us through kind of like how you would interact going into the OR, introducing yourself, maybe all those little tidbits? Yeah. Your scrub nurse, I think in particular, could definitely make or break you. If you have a really good relationship with the scrub nurse, your surgery experience, I think, is going to be so much better. Uh, They kind of help you out a little bit and kind of likewise, if you're disrespectful and, you know, you didn't really do what you were supposed to do in the beginning, they can also make your life a little bit more difficult, you know, because they don't really trust you as much being around the patient. So that's kind of fair. So what I do is when I go into the room, well, first off, I try to get to the OR, uh, sometimes even prior to when the patient is in there. Uh, But, you know, if you don't have time for that or it's an emergency, just as soon as you get into the room, first thing, go and introduce yourself to the scrub nurse. Um, Tell uh, him or her your name, what year you are, 
And, um, you know, if you've already gotten permission from the surgeon or the OBGYN to scrub, then, you know, ask the scrub tech, can I go and grab my gloves and gowns for you? Because that's one less thing that they're going to have to do is go and get your gloves and gown uh, and then go get what you need for the surgery. When you come back, as far as opening them up, make sure it's okay with your scrub tech that you open things for them. Sometimes they like to open it themselves. Um, and sometimes they don't want you opening it directly on their table just in case you might contaminate something. And, you know, another thing too is if you're not 100% confident in yourself and being able to open something in sterile technique, I think mostly from what I've seen, they're pretty okay with that as long as you're upfront about it. And you say like, you know, hey, I've never really done this before. You know, should I open this or can you walk me through it? But, um, Definitely don't try to do it if you don't know how and risk contaminating the table because then, you know, now you have to redo the whole setup and it's kind of a whole mess at that point. Yeah, absolutely. I want to echo that sentiment. If you are unsure at all, just let somebody know. I think everybody's very forgiving if it's your first time scrubbing in. I definitely, on my surgery rotation, because this was for OBGYN, I let the resident know, hey, I've never scrubbed into an OR before. I don't really know what I'm doing. I've seen videos. I've practiced at school, but nothing really compares to the real thing. Um, so I think that was definitely helpful, and it gave them some extra insight and patience. You know, if they know this is the first time you're doing something, their expectations won't exceed what you can do. And so I think that really helps a lot. Yeah, I think Summer was always really good at communicating you know, her level, what she was comfortable and not comfortable with. And that's helpful because then they trust you a bit more to say, this is my limit. I can't do this. And I need a little bit more help for this. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So maybe just going a little bit more on OR etiquette. So we've introduced ourselves to the scrub nurse. We've gotten our gloves. We've gotten our gown. Um, So what should you do at this point? Yeah. So once your, you know, all of your materials are set out, then Typically, it's time to scrub. Um, The general sentiment that I've heard is as the med student, you should be scrubbed in prior to everybody being scrubbed in. The only exception to that is if your attending and your resident is already in the room and they're ready to go. So if your attending and resident are scrubbing in, definitely let them go and get their gown and gloves first because, you know, they're the ones actually doing the procedure. But if they're not even in the room yet or they don't look like they're scrubbing, Try to get yourself ready so that way you're not in the way. So go outside, scrub, come back in, put your gown on. The scrub tech will help you with that. Um, Same thing with your gloves. Uh, Get yourself ready and then, you know, usually I just kind of stand out of the way once I'm scrubbed in and kind of wait for things to happen. Uh, You know, if there's a scrub tech you know well and you know there's a certain way you can help them do that. If not, just make sure you're not touching everything or or anything (laughs) for that matter. Um, And then once the surgery starts, generally the rule of thumb is that med students suction. So anytime you see something being suctioned or anything that's, uh, you know, bleeding or there's fluid, uh, make a clear field for your attending. Um, Another big thing is make sure not to touch the scrub text table. Yeah, actually with that one, I've I've had conflicting experiences with that. Yeah. I would say definitely error on the side of don't touch the table. However, if there's a lot going on and they really do need your hands, ask first. You know, hey, like I noticed that you're really busy with all the things that are needing to be handed. 
you know, and this is probably not something you're going to do in your first surgery. This is something that you might do like after you've had like multiple C-sections or multiple of the same surgeries, then you can kind of anticipate, you know, the tools and you can do it properly, but always ask. And I think, you know, this is, you have to think about it terms to the scrub tech. This is their responsibility. They're in charge of maintaining the sterility. They're in charge of maintaining, you know, how the tools are, you know, you have to make sure you don't leave a tool in somebody's cavity or a, um, or a towel that could be really bad. So they have to make sure that they're keeping track of everything on their Mayo. Um, so definitely, you know, just don't and ask yeah. if you're going to. <laughs> I agree with that. I've definitely been in scenarios where things were a little bit more chaotic. And so I thought it would be okay to grab something off the stand and then the tech didn't like that. So I kind of learned from there not to do it. And then only if it's like an absolute emergency or, you know, I've already asked the scrub tech, like, hey, is it okay if I grab this? Mm-hmm. Then that's really the only scenario when I would touch the table. Also pay attention to sometimes they start handing you the tools. So like a lot of times if I'm, you know, it's the first time I've done this kind of surgery. I don't know when I'm supposed to suction. I don't know when I'm supposed to pick up the scissors or whatever. If you kind of pay attention, the scrub tech usually kind of like, like kind yeah. of glides the scissors over into your hand or they glide the, um, like the boat or not the bovie, the suction. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, another thing that Lexi, I feel like I didn't know this before surgery is that you can suction smoke. What a cool concept. Yes. <laughs> I had no idea. I thought suctioning was just for blood. And so I remember during one of my first surgery uh, rotation cases, they kept yelling at me to suction. And I was like, I don't know what you want me to suction. There's no there's blood. No liquid. There's no liquid. There's no blood. Like, yeah. I, like I thought this was some kind of hazing joke or something, but they really wanted me to suction the smoke, which makes a lot of sense. Um, because you don't want the smoke just bothering everybody. I actually had that exact same experience. I didn't really get it because they kind of, they're so used to it that they just think we know to suction the smoke and what we're doing, but we really don't. And, um, yeah, I had that same experience where I didn't know that I was supposed to do it. And then I had a scrub tech who kind of told me it should be a reflex. Every time you see the bovie picked up, pick up your suction and follow follow the attending, follow the resident and make sure you're suctioning that up so we don't have to breathe it in. Okay, great idea. So you talked about the reflex of pick up the bovie, you pick up the suction. What are some other reflexes that students should have in the OR? Yeah, another big one is whenever you see a knot being tied, grab some scissors or ask your scrub tech for the scissors. Usually if you have your scissors ready to go and your attending can tell that you're really paying attention to what what's happening, they'll let you cut the knot. Um... And I know it sounds kind of silly to practice cutting, but you should practice cutting. If you cut at an angle, you could definitely YouTube like proper, I don't know, not cutting technique. Mm-hmm. Um, There's certain techniques that will make you look more like you know what you're doing. Mm-hmm. And so if you go in knowing those, that's, you know, that'll give you a leg up. Uh, other reflexes. I guess if you see something bleeding, you know, grab the suction, ask for a lap pad to mm-hmm. be able to uh, clean that up. I don't know. Anything else you can think of as far as reflexes? Um, as far as reflexes, yes, because I think everything else is much more situation dependent. You know, I think like as a rule, you know, not tying, grab the scissors. And then as far as cutting the right knot, what I've kind of been told, and I don't know if this is everybody's exact way that they do it. But I've been told is to have the little, um, the metal piece 
what is that called? The It's like a screw almost of the scissor that you have like. Oh, yeah. So that side of the scissor should be upwards, like facing the sky. And then you take the scissors, you open them, you know, not super large, like you're going to cut a piece of paper, but just a little bit. Run the scissors all the way down to the top of the knot. Turn it at probably like what, like a 45 degree mm-hmm. angle and then snip. Yeah. And make sure you're always cutting with the tips of your scissors. Mm-hmm. That's something that also makes you look a little bit more advanced when you start. And the reason we do that is just so we see exactly what we're cutting. You know, if you cut a little bit further down on the scissors, you could snip something with your tips when you cut. Yes, absolutely. Um, great. So then, okay, so we're doing the surgery. We're trying to be helpful. Um what next? So after the surgery is done, like what can what can students do to be prepared and stellar in the OR? Yeah, it definitely is going to depend on uh, what type of surgery it was and I think how intense the surgery was. So let's say for a C-section, for example, what you should do. From what I've seen, generally the attending leaves before everything is sutured up. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you've had the same experience. Yeah, that's mostly been it. Yeah. So usually the resident will kind of suture up, um, you know, the last little bit of the the scar that they're using. And depending on, you know, your relationship with the residents, kind of what the experience usually is there and what they allow, they might let you suture a little bit. So what sutures do you think students should know how to do prior to going into surgery? Yeah. So some good sutures to practice and um, do well ahead of time would be your subcuticular interrupted. So I think a lot of times students get to close port sites. That's always a good one to have the student do. And so for that one, you're going to be taking your needle, going deep to superficial, superficial to deep, and then not tying. Um, So that's always, you know, it's a quick stitch, always a good option for the medical student to do. um, And something that, you know, if you can do it, you know, it looks... It looks good and it's also fun to like get involved and do a little bit here and there. And for knot tying, you should know going in a two-handed tie and you should know an instrument tie. There's some attendings that don't like when students do instrument ties because they want them to get used to using um, the sutures and really knowing how to tie properly. And then if you're more ambitious and want to learn one-handed ties, go ahead and do that. But kind of on the same token, there are some attendings as well that prefer that you do two-handed ties before moving on to one-handed ties. Yeah, I think the moral of that story is that everybody's different. Every attending has different preferences, not just in the way they do things themselves, but how they want learners to do things or how they want learners to start doing things. So if somebody tells you you're doing it wrong, you might be, but also you might just be doing it different than the way they wanted you to do it, and that's fine. Um, So... Don't take that too personally or to heart. And then for, especially for OB-GYN or for longer surgical um, incisions, you're gonna you're you're gonna want to be able to do a running subcuticular um, from start to finish and be able to like. I think the hardest part of that one is the starting and the finishing. They're just a little mm-hmm. bit different to be able to get the knot or the suture underneath the skin. So. Yeah, and I think it's the kind of thing where once you do it a couple of times, you get more used to it and more comfortable. Mm -hmm. And so when you go into the OR and things look a little bit different on, you know, some patients have stretchier skin than others and it's a little bit harder. Yeah. Sometimes the field is a little bit more bloody than you're used to. So I think just doing a few, um, you'll get used to it. 
Another thing too I've been told is that you don't necessarily have to know how to tie knots or how to do sutures before going into a surgical rotation, but it's just kind of useful if you look it up beforehand. I don't know about you, but I kind of get flustered when I'm trying to learn something new in the OR. And so I think having looked things up and making sure I know what I'm doing prior just kind of makes things a little bit more relaxed and easier for me moving forward. Yeah, absolutely. I 100% agree. I'm definitely a nervous Nelly when I do things the first time. Um, I get caught off guard. So into that same sentiment, don't feel like you have to be super fast or do the best suture. Like take a breath, stand up straight, think about what you need to do if you've practiced it before and then do your best. They can easily take it out if it's wrong, but at least you you tried and you're going to be better the next time. A hundred percent. I think that's a really good point, kind of taking your time and making sure you're doing it right. Sometimes it's hard as a student because you have different people that are waiting on you to finish up. Like anesthesia? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) But at the end of the day, you have to learn, you know, how to suture properly, how to tie your knots. Um, And I think if you rush it, there's a higher chance that they're going to take out your suture or... You know, you're not really going to learn the way that you need to. So I think that's a really good tip. I remember one of my first times suturing during during surgery rotation, the anesthesiologist, I just remember looking at him and just saying, I'm so sorry. (laughs) (laughs) This is taking so long. Yes. I'm so sorry. And he was obviously very nice about it, but it's kind of comical because they they're ready to like, you know, wake the patient up and be done. Yeah. But, you know, the med students suturing. We're learning. It's important. I know that's a funny story, but to the same token, I think that's just a really good example of communicating well with the people in your OR. Because I think if you look up and kind of make fun of yourself with anesthesia, they're not going to be as mad at you. Yeah. They're like, okay, she knows. (laughs) I'm well aware I'm slow, but thank you for your patience. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, absolutely. Okay. So patient is all sutured up. Yes. They're ready to go. What do we do? So by that point, your attending, your residents are probably scrubbed out or at least getting ready Mm -hmm. to scrub out of the surgery. Uh, Typically, I like to be the last person to scrub out just because I feel like if there's anything that needs to be washed or done at the last second, it's kind of a good time to learn because nobody else is scrubbed in. So sometimes you might be able to do something. You can look like a fool by yourself. Right. Yeah. (laughs) My favorite thing to do. Yes. Um, no, but then they'll take down the drapes. So you can definitely help the scrub tech take down the drapes for the patient, uh, throw it in the trash. Then, uh, what do I do? I usually, so then I think at that point, once we know the drapes are off, the surgery's done. It's a fair assumption that I can scrub out. So I scrub out and then I start thinking about what we need to do for this patient before we get them back to their room. So I try to find a warm blanket. That's usually something pretty helpful. Mm -hmm. Usually if you go into the little room that's next to the OR or somewhere in the core, the surgery core, you can find like a warmer. Yeah. And if you don't know, just always ask like, hey, I'd love to get this patient a warm blanket. Where can I go? And that's usually, they appreciate that. Yeah. And same thing with a gown. They usually come with a gown into the surgery, but sometimes it kind of gets thrown into the linen bin or you know somewhere else Mm -hmm. to make sure that there's one available uh then what else do we do we have to transfer the patient so with this before you attempt to do it the first time just you know make sure you let people know that you haven't done this before and they'll kindly tell you exactly how you can help 
So when this happens, um, people are going to pull the patient or rotate them to one side of the bed, stick like a thick board underneath them, lay the patient back down, and then they're going to use the board to slide the patient over to the bed they're going to be transferred in. And so that takes some muscle power, so it's always helpful to have an extra set of hands, the med student, to help with that. Um, Although, do be careful. A lot of times patients have Foley's in during Mm. surgery, so you want to make sure that the Foley's in the right position and you're not going to yank out the Foley and have it caught on something or whatever. So before, make sure the Foley is in the proper spot. Yeah, that's something I didn't know before. And you'll hear them say Foley up. And I didn't know what that meant, but it just Mm -hmm. means that your Foley is there to be transferred with the patient to the other bed. Yeah, absolutely. All right, so patient is in the bed. They are ready to be transferred. Anesthesia is waking them up. They're slowly coming back to it. Okay, this surprised me the first time I ever saw surgery is that people don't always wake up from anesthesiology gracefully. Oh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Um, We'll have to tell our story about that. I don't know if it was so much a story. This was – it was basically just Alexi and I were – scrubbed into a it was a urology a urology case. case yeah so it's just random we like opted in for this surgery yeah and so um we've done a lot you, or Lexi you did a lot during this surgery what did I you did do? yeah tell us I pretty much I bobied through the whole thing I removed the testicle I sutured it back up mm-hmm. I don't know for a minute I was going to be a urologist there I think you should have been I'm mm-hmm. just kidding no <laughs> Um, so anyway, so we're being our good med students and we are with the patient, you know, doing the whole transferring, getting warm blankets, all the things you should be doing. And, um, he's waking up from anesthesia and his arm is still attached to the board, (laughs) which if you're, if you haven't been in a surgery, basically you have the table the patient lies on and then they have boards for their arm and they're kind of tied down to it. I mean, not tied down, but gracefully tied down if you will yeah and so he this man starts waking up from anesthesia and just starts moving his arm like like I don't even know how to describe it he was just just like yeah like writhing and breathing like all over the place like you start seeing his facial expressions change like he's being kidnapped or something and we're just like oh my god we've never seen this before (laughs) and so I'm there trying to hold the arm down so he doesn't you know like (laughs) punch somebody or hurt himself or like rip something out so I'm holding down his arm but you know these muscular activities just like weren't what I was prepared for (laughs) and I was like closer to the legs holding them down with I think it was the nurse in the room Uh we were trying to hold the legs and so from my angle I just see Summer holding the arm board which is at this point had been disconnected from the bed (laughs) so she's holding this man's arm connected to the arm board going like up and down in the room (laughs) and then at that point they called for more assistance just getting flung around by this man's arm (laughs) casually woke up from anesthesia anyway so that could happen don't be alarmed but I think you know c-sections are different they're yeah much more calm but surgery in general you would see more of that yeah that was actually the only time I saw it that badly oh really yeah I you know I've seen like a lot more like jerking in general really yeah I haven't really seen it that much that was the only one Hmm. do you have any tips then since you've seen it a couple more times yeah I think you know a lot of times they try to kind of like pull out their um ET tube and so you just like with that you just got to make sure they're not you know hold their hands down you know gently don't hurt them um just so they don't like rip out their ET tube prematurely but yeah from the one we saw 
I was also thinking it'd probably be good to make sure you're not getting hurt yourself because yeah. that just creates <laughs> more work for everybody, honestly, at the end of the day. Mm-hmm. Um, I think we did a pretty good job of that, but I think, at least for me, I could have been a little bit more conscious of that because mm-hmm. I think you kind of go in as the med student and you think, you know, if there's an opportunity for you to be helpful in some area, you kind of jump on it. And so you see somebody moving around and we can hold somebody down usually, but something to consider too is sometimes, you know, this man is a 250 pound muscular man, mm-hmm. you know, kind of be aware of your limitations there. Yeah. And I'm a 25 year old woman. So yeah. it's, <laughs> it's a little different. Um, okay. So we have the patient, we're ready to transfer. I think the last thing to do is just always go with your patient unless you immediately have something that you're supposed to be doing. Um, just, you know, kind of walk back with the patient in the bed, take them back to their room with whoever else is transferring and just make sure that everything's okay. Usually you'll take them to pack you or sometimes you take them back to their room, whatever the situation is. Um, it's just a good idea to like go and follow up and make sure everything ended okay. Yeah, once you're in the room, it's usually pretty helpful if you can kind of connect the patient's SCDs, which are sequential compression devices, which basically kind of give uh, the legs a massage and prevent DVTs. So I usually like to reconnect those. Um, sometimes I help get the blood pressure cuff back on. And then I just wait to see what the first set of vitals is. So that way when I report back to my attending or my resident and they ask how the patient's doing, I don't just say, oh, they're good. You know, I actually can say, oh, vitals are stable. Mm-hmm. They're in bed. Yeah. You know, not feeling too much pain. All right. So I think we've talked a lot about the OR. Um And I think just like wrapping up this little segment, I think my biggest piece of advice for going into the OR, whether it be on your surgery rotation or your OBGYN rotation, would just be to relax. You know what I mean? It's kind of an intimidating place. At least it was for me, especially. Um, You are most likely going to make a mistake and that's okay. Just be honest about it. And, you know, you're probably going to have people that tell you maybe you aren't doing something right. Just listen and, you know. Take it in stride and you're going to – I definitely made a lot of mistakes. What about you, Lexi? Did you make a mistake? Absolutely. I can't even count the number of mistakes I made, especially in surgery. I think being our first rotation and we were pretty apt on learning things. So we kind of put ourselves in lots of weird and new scenarios. Mm -hmm. And so if you do that, you're going to learn the most. But I think you're also going to mess up the most. Yeah, absolutely. I – messed up for sure I will (laughs) Summer can you tell us your most humbling OR experience my most humbling OR experience would be the time that I just about tripped a surgeon in the OR and caused him (laughs) to physically scream out loud Um, and this is a legend let me just make sure everybody knows everybody still talks about this and it was posted on the wall what she did oh yes thoroughly (laughs) embarrassing Um, but it's okay it's been about a year so I can talk about it now Um, so (laughs) this is one of my first surgeries that I was in it was a vascular case. So it's a long case. We're on this man's leg. They're doing all these very intricate things in his arteries. And so, you know, I'm the first one scrubbed in. I'm there in my spot. Everybody kind of came in after me. So I'm not, you know, you know, I'm just there. I'm there. I'm focused on the leg and I'm learning like a good student. Yeah. And so pretty soon I've been retracting for a while. And the surgeon asked me, hey, Summer, can you please change sides of the table and come retract from this angle. And I was like, ooh, great opportunity to help. I'm excited. Let's go. And so I'm on a mission. I am ready (laughs) to go. I take a step back from this table and I charge. I walk across this room. I am strutting, ready to get to the other side of the table. She is ready. (laughs) Unbeknownst to me, 
Um, <laughs> this surgeon has his loops. They're loops, right? Yeah. Loops. He has his loops plugged in to a machine behind me. And so he has like these. How would you describe them? They're basically like tiny little glasses that connect to your head. And there's a long wire. Mm-hmm. That goes to a machine. Yeah. And it's to help the surgeon like visualize better, right? Yeah. So yeah. like if you're wearing loops, it's pretty much just like, I don't know, like a microscope at what you're looking at. Mm-hmm. And usually when they're wearing loops, they're very focused on what they're doing and in like an extreme focused state, just looking at the patient. Yes. Yeah, so this man's very focused. I'm very focused on getting to the <laughs> other side of the table. And I was scrubbed in early, so I was not aware that somebody was plugged into a machine behind me. So I walk in between the surgeon and this machine through his cord. So I walk through his cord, which is attached to his head. His head pulls back. He takes a step back from the table and screams. He was like one step away from falling on the floor. (laughs) This is post-whiplash. So I basically just gave this surgeon whiplash. And he like, it was one of those moments of just like pure fear. I was just like, oh my gosh. Yeah. I just almost. My medical career is over. (laughs) I'm done. I'm failing this rotation. I might cry now. Who knows? Anyway, so there was like a pause, the longest pause I might have ever had in my life. And then the surgeon starts laughing. And I was like, thank God. Yeah. (laughs) Crisis averted. Crisis averted. He found my um ineptitude quite comical (laughs) (laughs) so anyway I made it to the other side of the table after a while he gave me you know a hard time for the rest of the surgery as was fair but um I made it alive I learned to be more aware of my surroundings during a surgery and to uh, maybe look where I was walking yeah moral (laughs) of the story (laughs) yes so if I can almost trip a surgeon during his own surgery it's gonna be okay All right, Lexi, what about you? Do you have any stories about how you humbled yourself in front of any kind of attending? Hmm. Yeah, for sure I do. Let me see. The first thing that comes to mind, let me preface this story with saying that in undergrad, a lot of my friends called me Frank because my last name's Frankel. So that was my nickname. Like, hey, Frank, what's up? And I think during my surgery rotation, I was just tired and not thinking a lot of times. And so (laughs) there was this one morning when the attending came right before rounds. And the first thing he said was, hey, how's Frank doing? And he was the kind of guy where you could expect him to say something like that. Like, how's Frank doing? Give the med students nicknames. And so me thinking I'm really vibing with this attending, I was like, hey, I'm doing great. How about you? How was your weekend? And he was like, what? (laughs) I'm talking about our patient, Frank. And I was mortified. <laughs> and that just became an ongoing joke. So did he call you Frank from then on? He did. I love that. So I was Frank. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's a good lesson too. You should always know your patient's name. Yeah. <laughs> for sure. Maybe I could have avoided that. No, I did know my patient's name. I was just, I don't know, thinking we were having more fun than we were. You were excited. Yeah. That's as to be fair. All right. So we have talked a lot about the OR and how to be prepared in the OR. And I think that applies for surgery and for OB-GYN, and that's all good stuff. But a lot of OB-GYN also isn't surgical. You're going to be in the office. You're going to be in the clinic. You know, you're going to be on the L&D floor managing deliveries. Um, So what other advice do we have that's not OR related? Maybe let's talk a little bit about clinic. Okay. And what we should expect and Mm -hmm. what we can do to be helpful. Yeah, let's do it. Yeah. So 
with clinic, it depends, you know, what kind of clinic you're at. If you're just at a regular OBGYN clinic, some of them do OB days and then gyne days. Some of them see all of the patients on the same day. So you don't really know what you're going to walk into. I think a lot of what you see are OB follow-ups, new OB appointments, um, and then general gyne complaints from, uh, you know, pelvic pain to vaginal burning, itching, dryness, menopause symptoms, all the above. So definitely get familiar with some of those things before you go in, just so you know a little bit more about what you're seeing, what you're learning, things like that. Um, And then lots of annuals as well. So depending on where you are, they might let you do pap smears. I know I definitely did a lot of pap smears in my clinic. I don't know what your experience was. Yeah, so I... I did do quite a few pap smears. I didn't have nearly as many clinic days as you did, I believe, during our third year rotation. Um, that was something I got more when I did um, elective fourth year rotations. Yeah. But yeah. Yeah. And for knowing how to do pap smears, definitely like look up a video or something just so you mm-hmm. are generally aware. Or ask the school if you can practice on the task trainer before your rotation. Yeah. I think that was really helpful. But I think for me, it was a lot different when I did it for real the first time as opposed to using a task trainer or absolutely, you know, so you kind of just got to get used to doing it. Make sure you're really comforting and explaining everything to your patients and then just go slowly. You know, if you're not seeing the cervix when you do it, let your attending know, Mm -hmm. let your resident know like, hey, I'm not finding it. Can you help me? Yeah, absolutely. Another thing, too, is to familiarize yourself with the speculum. I was kind of, I didn't realize there was so many different types of speculums. I mean, they're all relatively the same, but you just want to know like exactly how one clicks open, how you close it and like do it a couple of times before you, you know, go to your patient. I think that's just courteous. Yeah. You Um, don't want to be mid pap smear and realize you don't know how to close the speculum. Yes. (laughs) Yes, that is correct. Um, Yeah. And so in that same vein, you also, I would recommend, I didn't do this during my third year just because. It was just a different setting, but more so when I was on like the L&D floor and in the hospital, I'd always keep lube in my pocket, the little packets of lube. And I feel like that was really helpful. So like even if I wasn't the one doing the vaginal exam or the pap smear, I'd have it ready in my pocket to go. And as soon as my resident or attending put on their gloves, you open it up and you're ready to like provide the lube and you can never do too much lube. Yeah, that I would say is probably top five tips Yeah, we're going to give today is always have lube in your pocket. Mm-hmm. I think like when you start to do that a lot, they start to look at you for the lube. Yeah. You know, like they're about to do the cervical check mm-hmm. and they kind of put their hand out like yeah. lube me. Yes. Um, And you also kind of make yourself look more prepared and like you know what's going on. Yeah. And I feel like they, they see that and they see, oh, you're interested and you're invested and you're paying attention. So maybe I'm going to let you do the next one. Yeah. Um. So... I think that's helpful. Yeah. And then maybe something else just that I wish I knew before going into clinic was kind of what to do during your OB follow-ups. So usually they're going to uh, measure the uterine fundus, kind of see that the growth is appropriate. And then usually they'll get a Doppler uh, fetal heart tone as well. So the trick I learned for fetal heart tones that I really wish I knew sooner because it made it a lot easier to find the heartbeat is you take the number of weeks that the woman is. So say she's 20 weeks gestation. Uh, We know that 20 weeks is going to be around the umbilicus for where the fundus is. So you go half that amount. So you're at 10 centimeters. So you pretty much go halfway between the pubic symphysis and the umbilicus. And that should be about where you should hear the strongest fetal heart tones. 
Um, if you want to feel a little bit more, if you can feel the baby, um, try to feel for where the back is and then kind of put your Doppler right over that. I think generally, you know, you're going to find it either way. It's just that this way you kind of have a little bit more targeted um, looking for it and you're not going to scare the mom as much when you're like looking around trying to find the heartbeat. Yeah, absolutely. I also, I did preface this the first couple of times I did it with the moms. I was just saying, hey, you know, I'm a student. I'm still learning. Sometimes this takes me a little while. There's, you're probably absolutely fine. Just be patient with me. This is a me issue. Um, I used to do that too. If I couldn't find it, I would say, you know, I'm just a student. I don't, you know, 100% know how to do this as well as the nurses or the Mm -hmm. attendings. One second, let me grab someone who knows how to do this a bit better. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think that's also, that's great tip, Lexi. I hadn't heard that. I'd more so just kind of heard, you know, like obviously farther along in gestation, higher up, whatever. Yeah. But I like how that gives you kind of a distinct way of knowing exactly where you should be looking. Um, I think it's helpful. Yeah. And it's kind of fun too, because then you can tell the moms what you're doing. Yeah. Like, oh, you're 20 weeks here. You know, the baby's probably around here. And then surprisingly, a lot of the moms too can kind of tell you exactly where the baby is or in what position. Mm -hmm. And I have found by really just listening to them and where they think their baby is, I've found the heartbeat a lot easier. Yeah, absolutely. Something else that's hard with that for me, at least initially, was like um, differentiating the sound of the baby's heartbeat versus the flow, blood flow through the placenta. Yes. Um, So I think that – and so – in my head, the blood flow sounds much more like a whoosh, whoosh, whoosh. And that beats more like What a, does it sound like? Whoosh, whoosh, <laughs> whoosh. <laughs> but the heart beats more of like a gallopy horse sound. Yeah. yeah. And then they might also ask you to measure. So pretty much much of the same token, you go from the pubic symphysis with your little ruler. And then the technique I was taught was you kind of start below the rib cage and you just feel below the rib cage down until you feel the fundus of the uterus. Um, you know, you can start a little lower if there are, you know, less weeks in gestation. But typically that works pretty well and it's easy to feel. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, any other clinic suggestions? Mm, I think just same thing as the OR. Like, know your nurses. Be helpful in mm. any way that you can. Be um, nice to the office staff. Introduce yeah. yourself. Um, it's really it's tiring third year changing different um, rotations every month and having to learn all new people but introducing yourself does it helps because you know just like introducing yourself to the office staff then they know who you are and they can say hi to you and you know it just makes for better rapport and you just feel more welcomed they feel more welcomed um, but I I'm an, more of an introverted person so I can see it's not always easy. Sometimes you kind of miss your moment to introduce, but just try your best to to put yourself out there. So, And make sure you say bye as well. I know that mm-hmm. sounds silly, but when you're leaving, just say bye. You know, thanks yeah. for having me today. Yeah. Make sure that they know that you're happy to be there. You're thankful to be there. I think little things like that can go a long way. And wait till you're dismissed, obviously. Yeah. You, know, you can't just <laughs> Irish exit a, uh, <laughs> a rotation. Um, <laughs> but yes, it's nice to say bye to everybody else in the office. Um, okay, so Lexi, you mentioned being prepared for what you're going to see in clinic. What resources did you use? Yeah, there's a few that I liked a lot. 
Uh, one was the Pimped OBGYN podcast. Yeah, that was a good one. Yeah, I think you listened to that one too. It just kind of goes through all of the different topics like postpartum hemorrhage, STDs. What else does it talk about? Like OB stages of labor. Yeah, it has like a before your first C-section, before your first hysterectomy. And those are really excellent resources before you enter those surgeries specifically. She kind of outlines what exactly the steps are going to be and how you can be helpful so we've kind of told you general tips to be helpful but this is a little bit more specific yeah and I think I used to listen to those in third year like before every c-section I would kind of listen to that on the way you know double speed and it's like 10 minutes and you kind of just feel a little bit more comfortable going in and you remember what you're seeing um a couple of other resources that I used I liked the UI's question bank the best yeah I did too I think those were really helpful for the shelf I mean I think everybody has their like UWorld or um, Amboss or whatever they prefer I think it kind of changes based on the year what people like so stick with what you like and what you think is good for you but then also do UI's if you want to like really excel on this um, shelf yeah are there any like books or resources like that that you liked so I also really liked the um if you go on YouTube my preceptor actually showed me this resource if you go on YouTube and you type in APCO medical student learning objectives for OBGYN they have a playlist of about 49 different videos they probably range from like 10 minutes to about 17 minutes and I really enjoyed those. I I had a long drive to my OBGYN rotation. So it was really helpful to kind of just put those videos on and I could just listen to them. And they went through a lot of topics a little bit more in depth than I think you would need to know for yourself. But it was really helpful in the rotation itself. Kind of talking about the different... Um, Gosh, I don't even remember, but there was a lot of very specific things that I went over, like when exactly you need to screen women for cervical cancer and like the different guidelines. And it kind of went through all of that, which I thought was really helpful. Um, Also, the ACOG bulletins, mm -hmm. those are the holy grail. Yes. So if, you know, if an attending wants you to present a topic, do not do a YouTube video, go to the practice bulletin. That is like the thing to do like the official statement on what we do for mm-hmm. like whatever condition that they're coming in on yeah absolutely oh I also had let's see what is it called just recently I discovered this we'll have to come back like a podcast no, or a book it's a it's a website that summarizes the bulletins I downloaded oh, it on my phone Let that would be useful them. yeah it's actually really cool one of the residents I met this summer showed me it mm. it is called one moment please are you doing that I'm gonna take a little coffee break I actually think this is growing on me a little bit it's growing yeah I typically don't like the caramel drinks but this one's not so bad it's not so like sugary in my face wow I cannot find it I will let you guys know after our commercial break today (laughs) um but it's a good one it summarizes the practice bulletins into like a couple different bullets so you can just look up you know preeclampsia and you can just know the guidelines right then and there um so that's definitely useful um all right Lexi so we're about 50 or do you have any what other um do you have any more tips I'm I feel like I'm kind of out of tips but let me know no I think that's about it for me too um a lot of it, I think, is just kind of learn on the go mm-hmm. and just be there, be ready to learn, mm-hmm. be thankful that you're there. And, yeah. um, you know, I guess be humble. Yeah. That's a good one too. know that you're going to mess up, but that it's going to be OK. Yes. I think it's like especially with being humble, you know, that 
curve, that learning curve of how confident you feel with how much experience you have. Sometimes it's easy to like, as you enter a rotation, think that you know the most, but the more you get through it, you realize there's so much more to know. So yeah, um, be humble, realize you don't know everything, but at the same token, ask questions, be curious and learn. Yeah. Um, Okay. So I feel like we're a little past our schedule. Do we want to still talk about the options for OBGYN careers quickly and then we'll break off to part two? Sure. Okay. So there are multiple fellowship options that you can take after an OBGYN residency. Um, Lexi, you just want to kind of briefly list the ones you can think of? Yeah. So there's minimally invasive gyne surgery, mm-hmm. which basically is just, um, you know, a very surgical fellowship where you learn how to do minimally invasive gyne. <laughs> Um, there is reproductive endocrinology, which they focus on a lot of things. Usually one of their main things that they do is IVF for patients mm-hmm. struggling with infertility. But they also, um, you know, do a lot of other things from contraception to endocrine issues, thyroid problems, uh, things like that. When I was on my <clears throat> REI rotation, I kind of realized that the scope is a lot broader than IVF and they actually are trained to do a lot more mm-hmm. than just IVF. What else? MFM, maternal fetal medicine, which, you know, they deal with the very high risk pregnancies, um, you know, and seeing them antepartum, making sure, you know, the diabetic or patients with other chronic illnesses um, are well taken care of. What else? I know I'm missing a lot. Oh, gynonc. Mm-hmm. Yep. Gynecology, oncology. You could also go into urogyne, mm-hmm. family planning. Um, Adolescent guy. Adolescent, yeah. Which yeah. I'm kind of, I'm, I'm interested to know more about that. I, that's something that I haven't met many people that are interested in and just haven't learned much about it. I'm just kind of, kind of interested. Yeah, that's an interesting field. Um, yeah, so I, we both did REIs. We did two weeks of REI mm-hmm. this like summer in August. Um, you were in the Miami office. I mm-hmm. was in the Boca office for our school's rotation. But I think we both had really great experiences, right? Yeah, I loved my REI experience. Mm-hmm. What was yours like? What did you do? Uh, it was really cool. I So it was pretty short time. So I can't. I don't feel like I did that much. But every day I feel like I just learned so much. But it was all just like really like, I don't know, earth shattering. It was just really yeah. cool to learn that you could do that and you could, you know, basically use medicine to create a baby and like all these things that affect fertility that you didn't really realize um and so the doctor I was with he was really great with patients too and that was fun to see like a good role model with patients just how he interacted and explained things I thought was really cool yeah I just thought it was the most beautiful specialty and Mm -hmm. the doctor that I was with was amazing shout out Dr. Pomerola she's just like an angel of a physician and was always there for her patients no matter what. Um, And, you know, they really help with really hard times in patients' life. You know, there's some couples that have been struggling with infertility for many, many years. And to be able to make a baby is just incredible. And to see the way that these patients reacted when they finally got pregnant or, um, you know, when their dreams finally came true is just so heartwarming. And I loved it. Yeah. I also just want to insert a little plug here. If you are interested in women's health, you can also, you know, there's multiple ways to um, practice this. Um, You could also do a family medicine residency. If you're somebody that's, you know, more so drawn to family medicine or the clinic setting or whatever it may be, 
you can do family medicine residency and then do an obstetrics fellowship afterwards or a women's health fellowship. There's different ones. They are pretty limited. I think there's not that many in the nation. Um, but it's, an, it's a unique way to like get to working with women. And um, you can also just do it to practice full scope as a family medicine physician. Um, although I do think you are a little bit limited in terms of where you can practice if you move forward with that route. I've heard, I don't know specifically firsthand, but I've heard that if you really want to do that, you would have to live in a more rural area. So, and some people, you know, that's, some people want that. Um, But I think that's a little bit of a deterrent for some. Why do you think it's more rural? Just because there's less OBGYNs in the area or? Yeah, because I think there's, you know, yeah, exactly. There's more OBGYNs in urban areas, and so people tend to go to that. But if you if you need that um, that skill in a yeah. rural area and you don't have it, then you're going to be the family physician that does it. That's interesting, though, because then you could still do family medicine, mm-hmm. have a wide range of patients, and yeah. you know, specialize in women's health. Yeah, as an aside. Yeah. But I guess that same token, there's also many ways to be a regular OBGYN. Mm-hmm. You know, you can be a generalist that focuses on um, different subspecialties. So you don't necessarily need to do a MIGS fellowship to be very surgical, mm-hmm. which I didn't really know prior to, I guess, the past year. Yeah. Like my fourth year rotations. Um, you know, you could be a generalist who does mostly OB or mostly clinic, mm-hmm. um, things like that. And then if you want to be more specialized and go a little bit further I think then fellowship is an option for you as well another thing that we haven't mentioned but I've seen is hospitalists so these are um, physicians that stay in the hospital usually for like 24 hours at a time and just manage anything obstetrically or gyn wise that that occurs in the hospital All right, so I think we've covered most everything we wanted to in this first segment, and we're about 57 minutes in. Do we want to go ahead and take a pause and come back in part two? Yeah, let's move to our little commercial break here. All right, sounds good. All right, welcome back to part two of our first episode together. Part I'm s- two. Part two. <laughs> All righty. Well, <laughs> just in case you forgot, I'm Summer. Oh, I'm Lexi. (laughs) I think this coffee is hitting me. All right. Well, anyway, so for part two, we're just going to start off by talking about residency application, the process in general. um, And then if you're interested in OB-GYN, kind of how that process looks a little bit differently, um, if that's what you want to do. So just a brief overview, you apply through a system called ERAS, not the um, Taylor Swift Eras Tour, although that is quite a fun combination or <laughs> I don't know what you call that. I don't know. Don't kill me. I'm not really a Swifty. Uh, Lexi. Anywho, so you apply through a program called ERAS and um, Lexi, can you kind of give us the timeline of when you apply? Yep. So let's go through when the application opens, talk a little bit about the supplemental, when to submit, all that. So this year, June 8th was when the um, the big ERAS application opened. So that's when you can start going in and putting your CV, getting your letters of rec uploaded, putting in your personal statement, all of those things. Then August 1st was when the supplemental application opened. So then you can start working on whatever your program requires for the supplemental. 
it varies program to program, year to year. This year for OBGYN, they only required signaling. So essentially for signaling, you have, at least for OBGYN, you have three gold signals and 12 silver signals. Uh, you know, this is the first year that they were doing signaling, but essentially it's letting a program know, hey, I really like you and I would come there. Um, and then September 7th is when you can actually start submitting your application within ERAS. But, you know, make a note that it wasn't until September 28th that residency programs could actually look at your application. And something important to know is that everything submitted before September 28th is time marked September 28th at 9 a.m. So essentially it looks all the same regardless of when you submit it before that date. But then anything submitted after that date becomes time marked with the actual time and date that you submit. So it's important to get that in early, at least before the deadline, uh, to make sure that your application is time marked the same as everybody else's and you don't look late on that front. And then regarding the supplemental, that was due on September 16th. Um, and that's when it closed for all the applicants. I don't think there was any thing similar to um, the actual ERAS where it was time marked differently depending on when you submit. It was just due on that date. Yeah, so that all sounds about right, exactly what we just went through. Um, so I think, you know, it's kind of a hard time, especially, at least I thought it was a hard time. You know, it's you're thinking about these applications, you have so much you want to do um, between the end of your third year and then the start of, um, you know, when those applications are due because you want to make sure everything looks put together and ready to go for your residency application. Yeah, do you have any tips for you know, students that are applying and going through the application season? Yeah, absolutely. So I think you need to maximize that time. Some things that you're going to need to do during that time is probably take step two. Um, I know a lot of programs like to see that you have your step two done and ready. You know, it's just kind of a benchmark that they can see, you know, oh yeah, like the student has once again proven that they're able to pass his exams and do well. So I think that's definitely something to do. Um, and then I know now that step one has moved to pass fail. So I'd imagine that step two is going to be something that perhaps programs look at more. I don't know. I'm not a program director, but that would just be my speculation if I were an applicant. Yeah, I wonder how that's going to end up panning out. Yeah, exactly. So I would maybe dedicate some time to that to, you know, do your best um, and put your put your best score out there. Um, and so for everybody's going to be different in how long they're going to need to take to study for that exam. Um, I personally took a little bit longer. I believe I took like six to seven weeks. Um, some people take eight weeks. Some people take two weeks. It literally just, it's up to the person and how you study and how you think, you know, how much time you need. Um, so I'm somebody that needs to go a little bit slower and take my time and make sure I move through each organ system or however I like to do it. So that's why I took a little bit longer. Um, but I knew that going into it and I scheduled it that way. What do you yeah. think, Lexi? I also took about eight weeks. I kind of lumped my honeymoon in with my step two studying. Not at the same time. That would make for an <laughs> awful honeymoon. <laughs> but I kind of lumped that vacation time together. And then I probably took six to seven, maybe six yeah. and a half weeks total mm -hmm. to study. Yeah, I do think I started plateauing at the end. So I think for me, that was like the perfect amount of time. Um, but I think other people would probably start plateauing earlier. Um, so it's, yeah. just, it's up to you. Yeah, um, I tend to like to take my time a little bit and make sure I'm not stressed and rushed at the end, um, you mm -hmm. know, especially if I can and my schedule can allow it. 
Yeah, absolutely. So you got to get step two done. So you have to think about the best time to do that. And then you also will, you want to make sure that you have enough letters for your application. So that's something else we can talk about. Um, You're going to need letters of recommendation and you want those to really be good, strong letters of recommendation. Um, And a lot of times those might come from your fourth year rotations just because you're a more seasoned applicant or you're more seasoned student and you also are closer to the time that you're applying and going to start residency. So I think it's usually a better reflection of you and your skills if you get fourth year letters. But, you know, there's only a limited time. You can't get all of your letters from your fourth year. Um, So do some research on what or how many letters your field is asking for, but also be aware that that changes program to program. So some programs will want to see four, some will want to see three. I think the general standard for most specialties is around three, but definitely look. And if you're somebody that's really interested in one specific area of program, make sure you do your research and you know. Um, and they might also be specialty specific. That's a lot of S's. Specialty specific <laughs> in terms of they want X number of letters from X specialty or however it is. Um, so you're definitely going to want to keep that in mind when you're planning your summer rotations. So if you need, you know, two letters of recommendation from fourth year rotations in your field, you're going to need to be able to plan that. If that makes sense. What do you yeah. think? Yeah, I think it's always a good idea to err on the side of caution and get more letters than you think you need. So really anytime you think you have a good relationship with an attending, you know, definitely ask for that letter because mm-hmm. it's a lot better to be applying and realize that you have too many letters and have to decide which ones to use than to realize at the end that, you know, you need another one. Yeah, absolutely. Um, And then getting letters from multiple specialties is always a good idea too. So, you know, even though I applied OB, um, you know, I actually ended up submitting a surgery letter as well, just to show that you didn't only really try on your, you know, your program of choice that you're applying to, but that you also put forth your best effort in all of your rotations. Absolutely. I think they're looking for well-rounded applicants a lot of the time. So it's helpful that to see, you know, what other specialties think of you as well. So I think that's, that's important. So for me, I don't, I don't know why, but letters of recommendation were probably my biggest stressor. Um, For some reason, I don't think it's that way for everybody. I think just for me, it was particularly stressful, (laughs) but um, keep that in mind when you're scheduling your summer, make sure that you have enough rotations that you can meet enough people to write your letters of recommendation. Um, and just try to be strategic about that and then do your step two. And then also during that time, start working on your, um, personal statement if you haven't already, and then your, um, CV as well. Yeah. And I think one thing that kind of helps with letters of rock is start thinking early about who you are going to ask and really ask yourself what your relationship is with that attending and what you think the letter would be like. You know, if you think that you have a really good relationship with an attending, you know, you really worked hard, you've gotten good feedback from them, uh, maybe you connected with about something personally with them, that's a good person to ask and um, make sure you ask early. So as soon as you finish your rotation, ask for your letter because I don't think anybody wants to be forgotten. You know, a few months later, things kind of get blurry as far as what experiences they've had with you and your letter can be a little bit Uh, more dry another to add on to that another reason to ask for your letters early is sometimes when you're applying for away rotations they may require a letter 
So if you guys aren't there already or you may not already know, when you're applying for away rotations, you usually use a program called VSLOW. Um, and through that you can apply, you can go wherever you want to as long as you get accepted. But some of the things they require is a CV, a personal statement or a letter of interest, and then also a, um, a letter of recommendation. Only some programs, I haven't seen everybody, but it's nice just to have that so you're not limited by a letter. Yeah, that's a good tip. Mm-hmm. And then what were you going to say, Lexi? No, I was just thinking more about letters of rec, kind of how to ensure you're getting a good one. So what mm-hmm. are some of the things that make you think that you would have a good letter from an attending? Yeah, I think it's the feedback they gave me. You know, I think you, you're you always going to have a gut feeling, you know, I did well in this rotation or maybe I didn't do the well as well as I wanted to or, you know, whatever it may be. I think I've had attendings tell me, you know, you did a really great job this rotation. You know, I'm really, you, you just get those general feels yeah. and you have to think about that. And if they're not forthcoming with that, it's another good opportunity to ask for feedback, like throughout the rotation as well as the end, you know, what do you think I could have done better? How do you think I did this rotation? And frame it in a way that is showing that you want to improve and learn from this rotation. And then also gives you an idea of what their letter would be like for you. Yeah, and sometimes you might be surprised. I definitely, I was on a rotation when I wasn't really sure how I was vibing with the attending. I didn't know if she liked me or not or thought that I was really doing a great job. And then I asked at the end and she actually gave me really good feedback. Mm -hmm. And I was surprised that she actually had noticed what I had been doing the whole time. Yeah, that's awesome. I think too, um, sometimes it's hard to get a lot of face time with attendings. And I don't think you should always let that discourage you. I mean, it is it is helpful if you work a lot with the attending directly, but the residents can also be a really great resource. Um, they can often let the attending know, you know, she did X on this rotation and she was really great about it and she worked well with the residents and worked well with the team and, you know, all those good things. Um, so don't let that completely discourage you. I think one of my letter writers, I definitely worked closely with her, but not every day. It was one of those things where like just because of the scheduling and the way it worked out, I wasn't with her day to day. But the times I was with her, I tried to make very, um, you know, useful or very, um, you know, I tried to make it known that I was interested. And so I think then I was able to still get a good letter, I hope, from her um, based on also those interactions, but also the interactions I had with the residents. And one thing, too, I didn't realize until later on is that your letters don't have to be strictly clinical. I think overall, the clinical uh, letters are preferred. So from an attending you've worked uh, directly with who's seen you interact with patients. But I actually ended up submitting a research letter of rec um, just because I've had a lot of research experience and I felt like my PI knew me very well and I would get a strong letter from that. So definitely not traditional, but something that I decided to do at the end that I thought would give a better idea of who I was and kind of the hard work that I was doing. Yeah, absolutely. So Lexi, I've heard about this thing called a slowy. Can you tell us a little bit about what a slowy is? Yes. So a slowy is required for your OBGYN applications. I don't know if other specialties require it. I think emergency medicine also has one. Got it. And basically it's a standardized letter of rec from what I understand about it. Mm -hmm. So you have one of your uh, OBGYN attendings fill it out and um, and it was essentially developed as a tool to give a more global perspective of an applicant's uh, readiness for residency 
that can be more easily compared to other applicants that are applying. So instead of your standard letter where it's just, you know, narrative of your performance, yada, yada, this kind of has more of a way to compare you to other people. Yeah, that makes sense. It's probably, I bet it's hard for programs to really um, decipher between letters because they are so subjective. And I think it's hard to tell, you know, sometimes you just have a very complimentary letter writer, although the applicants may not be that different or yeah. vice versa. Um, and it is a required letter for your OBGYN application. So, you know, you should try to get it filled out quickly during the application process, not not too slowy. No, what a, <laughs> that's so funny. Um, okay, so I think we've talked about letters for a while, but I will just say my last tip is to just follow up with your letter writers. I think why I was so anxious about this whole letter rec situation is I had a really hard time with this in undergrad when I was applying to medical school. I had quite a few people kind of ghost me, if you will. Um, <laughs> before. Spooky. Yeah, I know, so spooky. And so that can be a fear for sure. Um, so I would say stay in contact with the people that you want to write your letter. Don't, you know, inundate them and be obnoxious. You know, start with a timeline. You know, as soon as they are allowed to upload it, I would definitely say that day, reach out to them, send them an email with a link saying, here's how you upload it. Let me know if you need help, yada, yada. And then follow up from there if they still haven't. I don't know a magical timeline, but maybe just use your best judgment. And, you know, if things still aren't, if they aren't answering or you or whatever, you might need to step up the level of communication. But again, just use your best judgment and be professional. I agree. Make sure that you have your letter in on time. Um, Reach out to them if you need to. But if applications are due end of September and it's July, Maybe kind of shy away from sending an urgent email and kind of just more a follow-up. Yes, exactly. And I think for the most part, all these attendings, they get it. They've had to do this before. They probably work with fellows that have to do a similar thing. I think everybody kind of understands. So if you just kind of say something about they're due, you know, please, you know, just be kind. Yeah, and just follow whatever their recommendations are. I had one attending who told me to text him to remind him and at first it can feel kind of weird to text your attending to remind mm-hmm. them about these kinds of things but if that's the communication method that they prefer then just do that because yeah. some might not be checking their emails and whatnot all right so final tips in terms of applying to residency i think my biggest ones would be to stay organized so, you know, that means in terms of your letter writer is beyond them. Stay organized in terms of making sure you know the deadlines and you're giving yourself enough time. Stay organized in terms of understanding every component you need to meet and making sure that you're on top of it. And then ask for those letters of rec early, follow up, start everything early so you can get feedback. I think that was a huge thing that I didn't realize how many times I would have to get feedback about different aspects of the application. I think I sent my personal statement to like five different people and each time somebody wanted to change one little thing of it (laughs) and sometimes they would just change it back but um, I think it's helpful just to get um, different people's perspective on your personal statement for sure. That's one thing I think was very useful to start writing early. I started writing my personal statement very early and Mm -hmm. it was very different by the time I actually turned it in but I think just having that draft of something written down kind of eased my anxieties a bit about it. Absolutely. Start early for sure. I did. I think we wrote it about the same time. I think we both, we basically wrote our personal statements when we were applying for our way rotation. So that was Mm -hmm. probably like April. And 
at that point, I was just like, I'm just going to write a full personal statement because I'm already here. And I think that really did help. Um, so I think that was a big thing for us. And then for your CV, if you are listening to this during your m1 year this is good advice for you make sure you keep up with your cv the entire time you're going throughout medical school even if it's not you're not perfectly writing out um, explanations of what you did just keep track of you know the fact that you were involved in an interest group and maybe i think for this specifically try to document the outcomes that your activities did something i thought that made my application shine a little bit if I'm not being (laughs) um is that I would write down the impact that my activities did so did your fundraiser raise x amount of dollars did it have an impact in getting somebody through a treatment program did it whatever you did try to think about the impact because I think that has more of an impression on people reading your application than just saying you were involved in an interest group or a fundraiser or a volunteer activity. What do you think, Lexi? Absolutely. And similarly, if you were involved in research, make sure you're writing down, you know, everywhere you presented, um, everything that was published. If you have colleagues whose papers your name was on and that they presented, make sure you're also keeping track of that. Because for me, I kind of lost track. And by the end, it was kind of a nightmare to compile everything and make sure that I had a good list of all of my projects and and that I wasn't forgetting anything when I made my final list. Mm-hmm. And to that token too, I wouldn't worry too much about formatting. For some reason, I prior to ERAS, I thought you were literally uploading like a PDF document of your resume, and that's just not the case. Um, ERAS makes you format a application or an RCV in their specific format, and you type it in and input it. So don't get caught up if you have like a business-minded friend and making your application or your CV look super snazzy and business-like and all of that. It's yeah. More, it's more about the content. Don't um, worry about the bullets and like yeah. bolding certain things because it's right. all going to get taken away anyway. It is. I mean, if you're sending the CV to an away rotation, like put some time into it. But um, yeah. for ERAS, I wouldn't stress about that. That was something I oddly stressed about. <laughs> Okay, so we have submitted our ERAS applications, and now we're just waiting. How was that? What do we do? During the waiting time? Yeah. I guess you just kind of twiddle your thumbs. Twiddle your thumbs, wait. Be anxious. And then for OBGYN, there's a universal release day that Mm -hmm. the programs are asked to release their interviews on. So a lot of it is just waiting for that day and seeing what you get. Yeah. Um, I think other specialties have a release day as well. Some do. I think um, I think emergency medicine does. Um, but also a lot of them are rolling as well. So we have friends in other specialties and they were getting interviews kind of here and there. Um, so yeah. And some specialties have two release days. I think Durham, they have two separate release days. Oh, that's interesting. Interviews. Okay. So you have your release day. You got interviews. Um, and then that's kind of where we're at right now, you know, so I don't think we can really give too much more advice in terms of the application process, but, um, maybe we can come back in a few months, come back in a few months. We'll have some good tips. Stay tuned. Stay tuned. (laughs) Oh, in that meantime, you probably should be practicing your interview answers, at least to like most commonly asked interview questions. Um, I tend to get nervous, so I think it was helpful for me to practice, you know, especially the questions like tell me about yourself or how do you deal with conflict? I think those are always good questions to just kind of 
mentally have something ready for. Um, I made Lexi listen to a couple of my answers <laughs> in a coffee shop. And they were very good. Oh, thank you. Would you hire me? Yes, I'd hire you oh, for my you. hospital. All right. So any more final tips about applying for residency? I think that's all I can think of for now. Mm -hmm. We talked a little bit about being prepared for your interviews, which I think we did in a okay yeah. job ad. And um, mm -hmm. what else? Um, if you have any more specific questions, just reach out to us specifically. I think yeah. we could answer. But um, I think that's about it that we have for now. Do we want to talk, move into our more fun aspect of the call, our most commonly pimped questions that we experience throughout our rotation? Yeah, most commonly pimped. Let's do it. Are you going to try like a mean attending voice when you ask me these or? Yeah. Okay. All right, Summer. Now that you have disconnected me from my loops, tell me the layers of the abdominal wall. Oh, God. So this really will be something that you're asked quite a bit. At least I was on surgery and my OB rotation. Um, so the layers of the abdominal wall that you're gonna, gonna wanna know is you have this skin and then you have camper's fascia, scarpa's fascia, and then you have the external oblique, the internal oblique, the transverse abdominis, and then you have the um, deep fascia and then the parietal peritoneum. Awesome. One point for summer. Yay. All right. Are you going to ask me a question or should I ask you another one? Um, okay, let's ask you a question. Okay. Um, what is the most common cause of postpartum hemorrhage? Uterine atony. I was asked that so many times on my rotations. They do love that one. That is a good one. All right. This is going to be a random question, a little bit more tricky Ooh, that I it. did not learn in anatomy, but I was asked at least two or three times during C-sections. Mm -hmm. So what is the artery that runs through the round ligament? Samson's artery. Wow, she Look knows it. Yeah. yeah, that is a random one. I think, although we're probably not going to ask each other, you should be very familiar with all the ligaments and then the arteries and the blood supply to the uterus and the ovaries and just you know general anatomy and know what they look like too it helped yeah. me to look at a picture of all of this like mm -hmm. if you google laparoscopic pelvic anatomy mm -hmm. and you can kind of see what things look like once you're down and dirty in there because it's definitely different than looking at an anatomy textbook or just reading where things come and go absolutely and then you will be most likely pimped during a laparoscopic surgery so that would be kind of like the the way to look at it for sure okay next question Lexi what is the average age of menopause last time I checked it was 51 yes correct cool all right Let's see. What else was I asked a lot about? What are the stages of labor? Yes, stages of labor. So you have three or four stages of labor depending on what resource you're looking at. But the first stage of labor can be divided into latent and active. So your latent first stage of labor is when the cervix goes from zero centimeters to six centimeters. And then active is six centimeters to 10 centimeters, which is fully dilated. Second stage of labor is the physical delivery of the baby. So when the baby is pushed through the vaginal canal. The third stage of labor is the delivery of the placenta, which also that's something I never knew existed prior to medical school. I the placenta? A plac well, I knew a placenta existed. Oh. I didn't know you had to deliver the placenta. I don't know oh. why. I just thought this was like something that just went away. 
my mom has like a horror story about her placenta coming out so i feel like i was always you were aware yeah mm-hmm. so delivery the placenta and then some people say there's a fourth stage of labor which is just recovery um i don't know why i said just that is a very <laughs> just recovery just recovery. No, big deal. no big deal no it's a very big deal yeah. that's a very intense process kudos so. to any woman that can deliver a baby yes that's incredible props all right, Lexi, we went over the stages of labor. Um, can you tell me about the laceration grades? Yeah. It's been a while, but there is grades one through four. And this is we're talking about like tears. Like a woman, if after she gives birth, she probably is going to have a tear. Maybe. Yeah. I shouldn't say probably. Um, I feel like more often than not, I, I see don't know. Tears. Do you think so? I, you know, I'm not sure. Yeah. I, would have I think to look it's just into that. it sticks in your memory when it does happen. So I think it's one of those things that we just think is more common. But anyway, continue. Yeah. So grade one is just the superficial tissue. Uh huh. A second degree then includes the perineal muscles, and then you move on to third degree, which includes the anal sphincter, but not necessarily the rectum. And then when you get to fourth degree, that's when you have a inclusion of the rectum as well. So that's a that's a pretty severe tear once you have fourth degree. Yeah. Have you ever seen that? I have. I've only seen two of them, though. Oh, really? I've never seen one fourth degree tear. No. Yeah. The one I saw was a um, a very fast delivery. Okay. And so I think that's one of the reasons there were some complications and the baby had to come out pretty quickly. Okay. And so I think... Pop that. quiz in terms of our pimping. <laughs> Uh-oh. Um, what do you call a fast delivery? There's a fancy word. Oh, precipitous. Ooh, look at that. Yeah, she's fancy. Okay, my turn. Oh, okay. I, that means I'm supposed to ask you. Yes. Okay. So what is, or what are, I should say, the components of a BPP or biophysical profile? Yes, absolutely. So this one I love to answer because somebody taught me a mnemonic and now I will never forget. So on a biophysical profile, I like to remember this, remember this with the mnemonic Batman. 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 Um, so the b in batman stands for breathing so you want to see if baby's like lungs are moving in a breathing fashion the next component would be afi so that's the a in batman which stands for amniotic fluid index which is a measure of how much fluid is around baby the next one is t for tone um, which is kind of like the flexion and extension if i am correct yeah and then m um in Batman, it would be movement, so how the baby is moving. And then N, we skipped over this. The second A is just, you know, don't forget about that AFI. Um, and then the N would be NST, which stands for a non-stress test. Perfect. Yeah. Those are all the components. Yay. All right. Um, and then just a little background in case the listeners don't know. Um, BPP, you get a score. I believe it's two points per category, so it's out of 10. And then a score of 8 to 10 is reassuring. Yes. All right, Alexi. So next question for you, I think, would be the G's and P's. I think those are something that's like a little daunting for people on their ob rotation. Can you just tell us how you define all the G's and P's? Sure. So your G's and P's typically are going to be different on your OBGYN rotations compared to family medicine or compared to other places. Uh, you know, in other places, you kind of just do a simple G and P. G is gravida, how many times um, a woman has been pregnant, and then P, para, live births. 
when you're actually on the floors in OBGYN, you want to break it down further and get a little bit more information about the patient. So G is still gravida. So how many times the woman has been pregnant? Make sure to include the current pregnancy. That's definitely something that trips people up sometimes. And then for P, there's a mnemonic that tells you what to say after your P, and that's T-PAL. So the T is term deliveries. P is preterm deliveries. A is abortus, so any abortions, terminations, miscarriages. And then L is living children. Okay, great. So maybe we can do a little bit of an example. I feel like it's always helpful to practice through that one. Yeah. So do you want me to give you a little scenario? And then we could break it down together. Yeah, let's do it. All right. So let's see. There is a woman that comes into clinic. She has had one miscarriage several years ago. Uh, Let's say two full-term births. And she has two kids at home. Okay. So what are her G's and P's? All right. So first thing, G, we have to figure out how many times she's been pregnant. So she had a miscarriage. She was pregnant then. Mm -hmm. She had two full-term births. So that's another two. Um, and then the two kids at home are from those two full-term births. So she's been pregnant a total of three times, so she'd be G3, right? Yes. Okay. All right. Now for the P, T-PAL, so term. She's had two full-term births, which is after 38 weeks, so two, right? Mm-hmm. So we're two. And then preterm, has she had any preterm births? Nope. Okay, so zero for preterm. Um, abortion. So in this case, I think something that's a little confusing is miscarriages count towards that abortion number, even though people may not automatically report it that way. So make sure you know that miscarriage is abortion when using this acronym. And make sure to ask specifically too, like, have you had any abortions, any terminations? Because sometimes people Mm -hmm. use different languages for these things. And, uh, you know, it's a sensitive thing to bring up. And same thing with miscarriage. Ask specifically about that as well. Yeah. Um, and so in this case, she would have one then. Yeah. And then she has two living kids at home. So own total, she would be G3P2012. Perfect. And Summer, you actually brought up a really good point when you asked, oh, so she has two living kids at home. Uh, it is important to specify, and I guess I should have made that a bit more clear, that the kids were from her full-term births. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's a good way to kind of run into issues and things that are unclear on the floors if you're just asking, how many kids do you have at home? You know, because sometimes people can adopt, they right. can have, a you know. children or stepkid or whatever it may be. Exactly. And mm-hmm. then, you know, you end up with G's and P's that are yeah not accurate and I have run into a couple of times people that have lost their children um and it's kind of made messed up my math just a little bit just because I automatically assume that if you had full-term babies that they're alive but that's not always the case unfortunately so absolutely all right so let's maybe do another one sure yeah let's do another scenario all right so do you want to role play this one maybe um you can be the student and I'll be the patient yeah All right, so welcome to Lexi's clinic. What brings you in today? Uh, A lot of things. I'm just really tired. I'm nauseous. I'm vomiting all the time. And I don't know. I just, I haven't had my period in a while, so I'm a little concerned. Well, that sounds like a lot to be going through. I'm happy you came in today. Yeah. So can we talk a little bit more about your history before we get started? Sure. All right. Have you ever been pregnant before? Uh, yes it's been a lot um let me see it's been I've been pregnant five times before five times pregnant Mm -hmm. all right and then of those pregnancies did you give birth to all of those 
Um, yes. Yes. Okay. No miscarriages, no abortions. Um, no, no. Okay. And then of those pregnancies, were they all full term? Well, my latest baby, she was preterm. Okay. And how many mm-hmm. weeks was she born? She was born at 36 weeks. 36 weeks. Yeah. And then all of the other ones, were they at 38 or above weeks? Uh-huh. Yeah. Okay. Perfect. Thanks for sharing all that with me. I would like to tell you before we move on that your urine pregnancy test was positive. <gasps> Yay. <laughs> All right. We digress. So going back to the G's and B's, that would make this patient a G6, if we're counting the current pregnancy, mm-hmm. P5 for term. Mm-hmm. Uh, preterm was one. So G5, one, no miscarriages or abortions, which would be a zero. And then, you know what? I didn't ask her about how many kids we're living they're all living they're a lot to handle and take care of <laughs> perfect so that gives us a five so we have a g6 p5105 which is a multip yes or grand multip i think over five is grand multip i think six and above yeah so that's okay. the same thing as over five i'm just being a synonymous yeah <laughs> okay <laughs> all right so i think we're good with that um i think the last thing that I thought would be helpful was just going over some basic abbreviations. Um, do you want to just kind of take terms and kind of shout out some abbreviations at each other and try to get the other one to guess it? Yeah. Okay. All right. Let's start with a very common one, AROM. Um, acute rupture of membranes. Yeah. All right. BMTZ. That is betamethasone. Yep. You got it. Um, BPP biophysical profile that's the thing we were talking about earlier with all the components yeah that one was a freebie mm-hmm. <laughs> all right <laughs> all right next one vbac uh vaginal birth after cesarean yes vbac but i've always heard it colloquially as vbac yeah okay you got it let's see something that is asked a lot iol induction of labor yeah okay eab elective mm-hmm. abortion yep you got it um all right let's see nst non-stress test yep mm-hmm. should we tell them a little bit about like what a non-stress test is yeah let them know okay so non-stress test is when you hook baby up to the monitor and mom um and so you're looking for something called accelerations accelerations are variability in the baby's heart rate so you're looking for accelerations that are the um the way i remember it's 15 15 2 and 20. so you want baby's heart rate to be 15 beats per minute above its usual baseline for 15 seconds and you want two of those accelerations in 20 minutes that would be a reassuring non-stress test um and that's for babies that are over how many weeks lexi 36 i want to say it's 32 is it 32 i think it's 32 i couldn't remember if it was 32 or 34 um but then younger babies would be 10 10 2 and 20 so it would be 10 seconds acceleration of 10 beats per minute um and you want two of those in 20 minutes Anywho, we digress. Just some confirmation. You are correct. It's 32 weeks. Okay. Very good. All right. So back to our 
initials game. All right. Who's, whose turn is it? Uh, your turn. IUPC. Oh. Uh, entering uterine <laughs> pressure catheter. Yes. Okay. Um, oh, this one's a long one. Are you ready? I hope so. I've never heard anybody say this, just the letters, but I've <laughs> great. <laughs> I've seen it written. She's just doing this to quiz me at this point. Yeah. N-R-F-H-T. Non-reassuring fetal heart tones. Wow. Mm-hmm. Okay. I have seen that one. Okay. Do, wait, do people say that? I haven't heard it said out loud, but I've seen it like in charts. I would say that's a mouthful to say. Just yeah. Words. I think it's easier just to say the actual thing. Yeah. Okay. TVH. Um, total vaginal hysterectomy. Yeah. Okay. That one I do hear said out loud. Yes. And TH, I think. Yeah. You know. Along For total abdominal. Yep. You got it. Okay. EMB. EMB? Yeah. Uh, gosh. Can I have it used in a sentence? Um, yes. We're concerned that this woman has something reminiscent of endometrial cancer so we're gonna do an emb oh endometrial biopsy yes you got it that was good um did we do fht yet fetal heart tracing yep okay what about gdm uh gestational diabetes mellitus yes you got it that one's a common one too Mm mm-hmm yeah LOF, loss, oh, leakage of fluids. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's it. And then I'll just do the other common one while we're here, LTCS. Uh, low transverse C-section. Yeah. That's it. All what right. else are, what are some of the really common ones? Um, well, what about, mm-hmm. oh, we can't, I can't believe we didn't do these already. PROM. Oh, yeah, we have, so PROM is premature rupture of membranes. Mm-hmm. And then I'll just do P-PROM mm-hmm. as well. And then that's preterm premature rupture of membranes. Yeah. Got it. And then PTD. PTD. Post-term delivery? No. Oh, I guess it could be either. Oh, no, it's preterm. Preterm. pre-term. But that is confusing, though. Yeah. Hmm. I don't know. Interesting. All right, what else? I think I skipped your turn and I went. I did twice. Mm, I did that before. It's okay. I think we're kind of getting to the end of our role here with these. Yeah. I will say something that we, that kind of came up in these abbreviations that we forgot to mention earlier that would be good when we, when you brought up LOF, leakage of fluids, mm-hmm. there's four questions you want to ask just about every woman who's pregnant whenever she comes in for something, right? Mm-hmm. So those questions that if you ask these, I think looks really good on your behalf is vaginal bleeding. Has she had any vaginal bleeding? um loss of fluid or leakage of fluids I've kind of asked you know like have you bit had a big gush loss of fluids recently um and then you're gonna want to ask about vaginal discharge that's abnormal for her and um contractions contractions but keep in mind you're not gonna have contractions normally um I'm sorry <laughs> obviously you're not gonna have contractions normally I'd hope not well unless they're like Braxton Hicks yes Braxton, yeah, contractions. Yeah, contractions they're gonna have those but I guess the other one I was looking for was fetal movement but oh fetal yeah movements the one that you're not gonna have really early on in a pregnancy yes. that would be later on so if they say no to that and they're you know 12 weeks that's 
normal. The leakage of fluids is a good one too. Make sure you're asking what type of fluid came mm-hmm. out. Like, is it clear? Is it colored? Does it smell? Right. Is it and bloody? Then, yeah. And then also, um, like, how much fluid? Yeah. Because especially when women are at the end of their pregnancies, you know, a lot of them can leak uh, urine pretty easily. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of important to try to distinguish at least did, you know, this pregnant lady pee herself or was this um, ruptured membranes? Hard to tell. Yeah, sometimes you can't tell. I know. Um, all right. Well, I think that's just about the end of all of our pimping questions. You guys are probably tired of hearing our voices and our coffees are just about done. Yep. Um, any final last words or words of wisdom you want to share with everybody, Lexi? Mm. Don't get the creme brulee at Starbucks. <laughs> all right. <laughs> it was not my favorite. Not her favorite. Sounds good. We'll get a better one next time. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, thank you, everybody, for listening in and listening to us talk about um, women's health and applications and third-year rotation. So I hope this was somewhat helpful and gave you some insight into third and fourth-year medical school. Yeah. Maybe next time we'll come up with a specific name. That would be fun for this podcast. Maybe something OB-GYN related. Yeah. Or something like punny. Ooh, all right. We'll think on that. Stay tuned and we'll let you know. Bye. Thanks, everyone.